as you see, I had that Dr. Kwasniewski here um, on Talking Catholic today. He's going to be talking about his his new book, um, The Holy Bread of Eucharistic of, of Eternal Life, Restoring Eucharistic Reverence in the Age and Piety. So this is going to be a phenomenal talk. And also, you guys, this is the book, and you can get it um, for free. Did you know that you can get it for free? I mean, also you can buy it at um, Sophia Press, where who is the publisher of the book. But also you can get it for free if you join me on Patreon. If you become a member of my uh, my team on Patreon, um, you join my book club, and you'll get this book for free mailed to you. Also, it's a good time to join because I have this book um, for free for you. This month is my book of the month, and next month my book is a month is a book by Teresio Tomio, Listening to God. Um, so you also get that book for free next month, Listening for God. Next month by Teresa Tommy. On this month, my book of the month is this book by Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. So awesome book. We're going to be getting into this. And so Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas season. I hope you guys are enjoying your Christmas season. It's so good to be back with you again. I know I've been um, gone for a little while. Got a lot of good things coming up. Got my new show, um, my syndicated show coming in on Guadalupe Radio Network next month. So that's gonna be really exciting. Getting getting ready for that, getting things lined for lined up for that. So I hope you join me there as well because I really love you guys. Um and uh comments, questions, everything, put them in the com box um after once the show begins. Um ask anything you want. We do have them here for just a little bit under an hour. So um it's gonna be a really good time. So I guess without further ado, I guess we should get get started, right? Let's talk Catholic. Let's go. Hey, how's it going, Doctor Peter? It's going very well. I wish you a very merry Christmas. <clears throat> we can say that all week as Catholic. <laughs> Yeah. Now, when when do you personally stop the Christmas season? Is nah, it this is a big debated question. <laughs> uh, I wrote an article about it at LifeSite. Uh, if people want to check it out, but really, the 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 reality is that Christmas has different levels. It's like uh, one of those Russian dolls that has the the different levels that you can take apart. Mm -hmm. You've got the Christmas octave, which is eight days of Christmas. We should all be celebrating Christmas that for that period. Um, right. But then you've got uh, Epiphany, the 12th day of Christmas, which okay. is a very ancient feast. In fact, even more ancient than Christmas. It's the original Christmas, you might say. Um, so we should be celebrating through that. And then after that, a week later, is the octave of Epiphany, which is the, the baptism of the Lord, traditionally. Right. Um, and then beyond that is Candlemas on February 2nd, which is really the definitive end of of the Christmas season, that's it. like that's the last echo of yeah. it. So that's when that's when I I take down you know the the Christmas tree and and all the you know it's I think I think we should maximize the celebration. That's, that's yeah yeah <laughs> that's awesome. I never I've always I've always done the the twelve days of Christmas, but um as far as the the ending you know that's when I, I take down the tree. But this year I'm thinking about have talked to my wife about this. We might go ahead and and go ahead with the um. The candle mask. Go ahead, take it out all the way to the, the present, um, um, the presentation. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, and I think it, it could make sense. Also, you know, the way that people decorate more and more as Advent proceeds, and then Christmas is the full shebang. 
Um, yeah. I think one could also kind of simplify as one went along so that it's not like, you know, your house doesn't look completely decorated until February 2nd. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So I think we have, you know, we can be creative about this because, you know, the church herself, you know, gives us these seasons. It's not all one volume, right? That like right. Christmas and Easter are the maximum volume. And and then it, and then she turns the dial down and down and down yeah. and down. Right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's more proper and fitting. That's true. And I think most of my, my audience, I think we have a, a similar demographic. I think most of my audience either knows your work very well or they've at least bumped into you on LifeSite News or the mm -hmm. Remnant or the Liturgical Movement, which, man, I bumped into that website, man, oh, man maybe, I want to say a few years ago, maybe four years ago. And it's been my daily reading. I just um, <laughs> it's a great website. I've learned it. Yeah. I've learned so much from all of the other writers there, too. Yeah, really, really, really smart guys. And um, yeah, I mean, you're in from many other publications and you've done some um, that, that you've worked for. And so um, but for those who do not know who the doctor is that we have here in our in the studio, um, let's jog through real quick your background. You're born in Chicago as you're born into the faith. So you're a cradle what we call cradle Catholic mm -hmm. um, in 1971, which means this year you're turning the big five zero. That's <laughs> a big year. So I'm right behind you. I was born in 1972. So let me know okay. how that goes. Yes. Right? Let me know how 50 okay. is. <laughs> and um, let's see. So you went on, you went to the all Catholic high, high school, all Catholic boys high school there and then off to Georgetown. And then you had a restart over at Thomas Aquinas college in California, went on to earn your, your master's. Boris and PhD in philosophy from Catholic University of America. And since then, you've been teaching, you, you were founding universities, you've, um, you're one of the founders of Wyoming um, College out there, and now you're retired, right? You've been retired for well, a couple of years? Yeah, let, let's, let's, let's not say retired, let's just say it's like a lateral move into a different <laughs> field. Um, okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I just, I, I've always loved writing uh, and and I, I really wanted to just devote myself 100% to writing books and articles. So, and, and I was able to make it work, you know, with with the various people who employ me. So that's how it's going. Yeah, that's wonderful. So you're having a good, you're having a good time. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, I do miss being in the academic environment and I do a little bit of online teaching just to, you know, to, to, to prevent myself from rusting in that respect. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, the, the, the writing is really, it's a different form of teaching. And, and a lot of people, I get a lot of feedback from my readers and uh, very interesting feedback, serious personal questions, as well as intellectual mm. academic questions. And so it, it definitely is, it's not a dull lifestyle, even if it's uh, sometimes a bit lonesome. You know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're living my dream life. So I'm like so envious of you. <laughs> So um, it's been good. It's been really good in this uh, strange COVID tide, um, you know, just to be able to work at home. I've always, I've been working at home for two and a half years, you know, so I, I was okay. doing it before it was fashionable. <laughs> You're doing it before all the cool kids were doing it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and you've, you've written, so talking about your previous books, you've written um, a number of books um, to name a few, Reclaiming, Reclaiming Our Catholic Birthright. The Catholic Genius and Timelessness of the Traditional Latin Mass, which people rave about. That was published earlier this year. Um, Tradition and um, Sanctity Conversations and Dialogues of Post-Conciliar Era. That was written and published in 2018. Noble Beauty, Transcendent Holiness, Why the Modern Age Needs the Mass of the Ages. That was published in 2017. 
I'm also uh, resurgent. Um, I think it's resurgent in the midst of crisis, sacred liturgy, the, um, the traditional Latin mass and the renewal of the church. We have some of these books also um, at St. Dominic's Media as well. We've, um, you know, St. Dominic's Media, we publish our own books, but we also, we like to specialize in just really good books on Catholic liturgy and history. So we have some of the doctor's books over there. But um, Sophia Press is um, the book we have, so, uh, Sophia Press that, we, that, that we're talking about today was published this year um just recently and so we're going to be talking about this book mainly here but tell us about so um so i've written this book you've written previous books um we won't be able to talk to the chapters obviously but um i want to like go through a list of some of them i just want to kind of after i go through the list for the readers of the of the of the, of the chapters i kind of want you to tell us okay what's What's new? What did, what, what, did, what did you bring that was new in this book compared to the others? Mm -hmm. So in chapter, I'm starting with eating fire and spirit. What's Christ's body does for us? The usefulness of, of Leviticus, which is an interesting chapter. Sacrifice for Catholics. St. Paul tells us how to fix our litur liturgical problems. The angelic doctor, the glory of um, Eucharistic theology. We're talking about, obviously, St. Thomas Aquinas there. Um, and then part two and part three, I think, is really interesting. Um, on worldly receiving the Holy Eucharist, why you should receive um, communion kneeling on the tongue. I know some people in the comment box are going to ask you about that one during the COVID season and a lot of priests mm -hmm. not offering that. I know we're going to get that question. Um, the scandal communion in the hand, the wisdom of tradition, time, time to end the ordinary use of extraordinary ministers, adoration as optimal preparation for communion, living the virtue of chastity by the power of Jesus, the mission that haunts the church, the progressive um, desensitization to the whole Eucharist. This is in part three now, these last two chapters. Liturgical abuse, sexual abuse, and um, clericalism, the refusal to exercise charitable discipline, limits to Episcopal authority and holy over Holy Communion, and a powerful engine to desacralization, discerning the true and false obedience. So there's a lot packed into this book. So again, you guys can get this on Sophia Press. So if you join my book club over at Patreon, you get it for free this month. Mm -hmm. So, but what's okay? So, compared to your other books, Doctor, what's what did you bring that was new? Right. So, I mean, of course, there are some common commonalities, but um, in as much as I'm talking about the sacred liturgy, but this book is is focused, as the title suggests, and as your table of the table of contents suggests, this is focused really very very particularly on the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist and 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 holy communion so how we approach how we treat the body of christ really truly substantially present in the holy eucharist as catholics have always believed and as as you know trent among others solemnly taught us so how do we what should our interior disposition be what should our preparation look like what are the conditions for receiving communion in a way that's that's going to profit us rather than harm us because we know it can harm us too um, scripture is clear about that, um, you know, and, and how should the clergy treat the Holy Eucharist and how should we not treat it? How should we not approach it? What are the bad habits and customs that we've fallen into as a church over the past 50, 60 years? Um, so I'm talking about all these things in much greater depth than I do in, in any of my other books. And it's really, you know, centrally focused on on the Eucharist and communion is really what this is about. But of course, once you once you look at those questions, you have to those questions radiate outwards, like the spokes of, of a bicycle wheel, you know, uh, they radiate outwards in the questions like, 
authority, how much authority do bishops have over how we may or may not receive communion? Um, you know, what about bishops and, and, and pro-abortion politicians? Why are they not correcting them? Why are they not putting them in their place and protecting their own souls as well as the sanctity of the Eucharist, right? Um, it opens into questions of obedience. Like if, if, a, if a priest is told to do something that goes against his conscience, should he obey? Should he not obey? What are the, what are the, what are the, uh, you know, how does the Catholic tradition deal with, with uh, a conflict like that? So, you know, it's, once you look at the Holy Eucharist, you actually find yourself touching on almost every aspect of, of the moral life and the spiritual life and the liturgical life. But of course, you know, I, I, I can't talk about everything. So I just talk about all those things to the extent that is necessary. Yeah. Now I like how you get to the heart of the issue in this book, because I mean, I'm sure you've noticed this, that over the centuries, over the last 2000 years, it seems as though every heresy that has come has either, is either a, a direct or indirect attack on the Holy Eucharist. And, um, and so it's, it's, it's like, principal matter of our faith if you if you take down a whole eucharist or you make it less sacred or you mm -hmm. or you say you desensitize it you, you you treat it as something other than it's not i mean you're really deconstructing the catholic faith at its core right right exactly and i think i think what we need to see is that you know when, when jesus says whatsoever you do to the least you do unto me okay well that's certainly true about the poor that's true about all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's true about the whole human race. It's true about the unborn child, right? That's It's true about all these applications. But it's also true about the Holy Eucharist, right? In the Holy Eucharist, mm -hmm. Jesus, um, for our sake, to feed us with his divine reality uh, and to sanctify us, he lowers himself to, so to speak, to the form of a simple host, a wafer, what looks like a piece of bread, what tastes and feels like a piece of bread, but by his divine power, it's himself. And he, and so how we treat the Holy Eucharist is how we treat our Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to be part of our judgment, right? As Catholics, if, if we never knew about the Holy Eucharist, then then this is this may not be part of our judgment. But if we're Catholics, especially, yeah. and we come before the throne of grace, we come before the, the, the eternal judge, he's going to say, how did you treat me when you were when you were face to face with me in the Holy Eucharist, so to speak, wow. right? When you when you approached me, and you know, did you fall on your knees the way the Magi did, the wise men, it, to offer gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Did you fall on your knees to offer me the gold, frankincense, and myrrh of your heart, of your devotion, of your adoration? Right? Is that what you did, or did you just saunter up and in a routine manner, in a casual way, and take this like a piece of bread in your hand and feed? yourself and and go back and not and daydream and look at your smartphone and whatever right i mean this is this is the this is a big examination of conscience for catholics yeah, yeah. like in, in elaine says her down in the comments she says it saddens me so much after mass when people start to talk like they're in a coffee shop and you, you touch on this in, in in your book and let me get the, the quote out exactly um in and, and it's one thing that I like about your book that it's not just some sort of um, smash job or some hit piece. I mean, you offer some really practical things that Catholics can do to restore reverence. And at one point you say that one of the most outstanding acts of piety and devotion to open Catholics in their daily lives is to remain after mass um, for a time of giving Thanks. Right. And so piety is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And you're saying that after mass, that's one of the things that we can we can do. 
Yes, exactly. So one, one thing that's very important to me um, as, as a teacher, but also as a father, uh, you know, is to be very concrete and very practical. So this book is not ivory tower, abstract, pie in the sky, dreamy stuff. Okay, this book is very concrete. Here's what you can do right now. A, B, C, D, E, right? It's it's very, it's, I try to be very practical that way. Um, when, when Pius X, Pope Pius X, who was a very great saint of the Eucharist and of the liturgy, uh, when he lowered the age for first communions because he wanted children to be able to receive our Lord sooner than had become customary, um, he also promoted was called frequent communion, um, and and but 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 unfortunately, the idea of frequent communion—that is, it was people were receiving communion rather infrequently back in, in you know 115, 130 years ago. He wanted to change that. He wanted Catholics to receive more often, but he wanted them to receive also devoutly and fervently to prepare themselves well. So he, in other words, frequent communion doesn't mean routine and habitual communion. What he says precisely is don't let it become a routine and habitual matter, but make every communion count, right? Yeah. Like sometimes if you go into a sacristy of a church, you can find a sign that says, priest, offer this mass as if it was your first mass, as if it was your last mass, as if it was your only mass, right? It's a great sign to put into a sacristy. Well, we should have that attitude about communion. And, and I quote St. Thomas More saying this in one of his prison journals, right? Um, when we receive Holy Communion, we, we have our Lord with us for a short time. We don't know when we're going to have him again. We, it, we might assume, oh, I'll be fine tomorrow. I'll get to Mass tomorrow. Well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be presumptuous that way. We should, when our Lord comes to us, we should really slow down, stop, take a deep breath, and just be quiet with him and listen and speak to him. You know, and, and we, we just, in other words, we... We would want to do for him the very least that we would do when we welcomed a friend or a, or a, or a relative into our home, you yeah. know, for dinner. The hospitality, Eucharistic hospitality, mm -hmm. really should refer to how we treat our Lord, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We need to be, in that sense, hospitable. Uh, and so preparation before Mass, it's kind of like, you could think of it as like cleaning up your house. You know, the guest is coming over, right? It's time to clean my house and put it in order. I go to confession if I need to. Um, you know, or I, and, and I, you know, I pray well, I think about, I start thinking about it the day before I'm going to mass tomorrow, I'm going to communion, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and then afterwards, right, we receive him into our home and we should treat him like Mary, you know, Mary of Bethany treats our Lord, right? She, she, uh, she sits at his feet and just drinks in his wisdom and really just drinks in his presence, um, you know, and Martha's out there being busy and we know our Lord our Lord reproves her for that. He says, you're just, you're preoccupied. You you need to come in here and do what your sister's doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I like those images. And, and that's one of, you know, I've talked about in, in the past about the, this man of danger, man. I pray, I pray for priests often because I, I know how it is. Because I know how, as, as we are, you know, we have, even people who work out understand how muscle memory works, right? You know, if you mm -hmm. if you keep doing something over and over again, perhaps you've, I don't know if you've, you've ever experienced it, but I've experienced it. You know, I've, I've driven home from work and once I get home, I don't remember how I got there because I never, I don't remember anything on the drive because I've done it so many times. Mm -hmm. It just becomes so routine. I've had, you know, when I was a kid, my grandmother used to have guests over all the time for the holidays. And sometimes, you know, the guests come in um, and, they, and at first, you know, you know, it's a new guest, you know, because they're taking off their shoes at the door. They're real polite. They're tepid. <laughs> but, you know, the longer they stay, the more 
you know, casual they become, you know, they, they lose that sense of, oh, I'm in another space, right? I'm not, and so, um, you know, uh, you know, I used to tell my grandmother, maybe you shouldn't tell people that, you know, feel like, you know, you should feel like you're at home, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't, don't make yourself at home. Yeah, don't make yourself at home. <laughs> but, um, but I guess that's the way, you know, it is at mass, right? Sometimes we just become, it just becomes just too routine. And so I think you're offering your books just some ways to stay fresh. Yes. And let me, let me add a point to that. Okay. One of the, one of the aspects of the genius of Catholicism that we've seen over many, many, many centuries is that the liturgy offered us and, and still can offer us um, opportunities, both of intimacy of, of, of time, so to speak, time alone with our Lord, when we can speak to him as a friend speaks to a friend, but also signs and symbols and ceremonies of majesty and royalty and nobility, um, where we're reminded that we are we are coming before the great God of heaven and earth, the king, uh, the king of, of heaven and earth, and that we, we need to enter into his presence with humility and with adoration and with veneration and with the deepest uh, reverence with with a reverential fear. Scripture is full of this. Fear is the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It says that a hundred times in Scripture. Okay? <laughs> so the, the the genius of the Catholic liturgy was also to remind us that um, you know that we need to it, to incul inculcate these attitudes. And actually, the liturgy did inculcate these attitudes. Um, and you know, I realize that our, our topic is mostly the Eucharist and not the liturgy mm -hmm. per se. But it, it is true that the, the traditional form of the liturgy, you know, uh, the extraordinary form, is very much, I guess, it, it, it strongly emphasizes the holiness of God. And I would even say to a certain extent, the remoteness of God, the strangeness of God, that he is not, he's not, you know, my chum, right? I, I can't, I shouldn't be condescending towards God. I mean, God forbid, right? He's the one who condescends to us in the incarnation because he is so great and awesome and mighty and infinite and eternal and holy he is far removed from us scripture is very clear about this and that's the the miracle and the wonder and the mercy of the incarnation is that god without ceasing to be god without ceasing to be all of those things that i just said also comes to dwell among us as a man and gives himself to us in holy communion so somehow we need to hold this paradox together and the, we shouldn't have to do all the work on our own Right, that's too heavy a burden. It, yeah. The liturgy itself should do that work for us. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah, because we're talking about yeah, living living the liturgy. And I think that's how you start off. I think um, chapter, I think two of your book you talk about. And I love when I was in grad school for theology. Um, this is really what you know. This is the one. If I if I took away just one thing, right, those you know two and a half years I spent in grad school, it was that I learned this about the admirable exchange. I had never heard about this, the admirable change is changed. Mm. You start you start off chapter two about that. You talk about God becoming man so that man may become like God. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a great time this Christmas season really to contemplate that mystery of the incarnation, right? That the divine taking on the human nature um, through, um, through which Jesus Christ permanently took up and elevated the human nature into the divine so that there would never again be a gulf between God and man. Exactly. And, exactly. and really, I, I love the admirable exchange. I mean, it sounds transactional, right? Because, you know, because I think, you know, I think we need that language to break through the tendency 
that we have in, in our you yes. know worldly space and we yes. just worldly transactions, right? Well, yes, exactly. And I mean, of course, the, there's a great history of the term economy in mm. in Christian theology, right? Uh, you know, the the divine economy yeah. is the yeah. way in which God takes care of of the cosmos and of the world and especially of the human race. Um, uh, you know, oikonomia there means household management. So it's it's God being the manager of His house and giving <laughs> giving His servants what they need in order to flourish, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so in a way, you know, the economics that we should be most preoccupied with is our exchange with God, right? He gives mm -hmm. me Himself, I give Him myself, right? I yeah. He gives me His heart, I give Him my heart. Yeah. Um, this is the this is the divine economy. Um, and thanks be to God, we can be part of it. Yeah. When did you when did you become most plainly aware that there needs to be like a reform movement to bring back reverence in the liturgy? When, when did you become like aware of that? What, what was the spark? You know, I think it, it's hard to say, it would be hard for me to say there was this one moment, like the road to Emmaus, uh, you know, when I'm when you're walking, you know, or 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 the road to Damascus of St. Paul, right? I, I didn't there wasn't one moment, but I think what happened is that I grew up Catholic and I went to Mass, you know, every Sunday, every holy day. My parents were very faithful uh in that regard. And um, you know, I got involved in various ministries. I went to I, I grew up in a very liberal parish. But see, when you're growing up, when you're a kid, you don't know anything. You don't know what's liberal, what's conservative, what's traditional, what's nothing. So I just kind of went along with the, the show and I was in the youth band, you know, like we had the guitars and all that stuff. And I was in, I was a lector and, a, and an altar boy. And eventually I became an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. I pray the Lord to forgive me for that because wow. I think that's a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. You talk but, about that in your book. But, yeah. um, you know, I was getting involved in all these ways, but honestly, when I look back on that period in my life, I don't know what kind of faith I had. I'm not sure I, I believed in the real presence. I mean, I don't know if I ever heard it, really. I mean, just sort of right there, put in front of me, like the Eucharist is Jesus Christ. Not just, it doesn't just represent him. It's not just a sign of his of him, but it really is him. And yeah. therefore we should treat it with the awe and reverence and adoration that we would give to God himself if we saw him face to face, as we hope to do in heaven, right? Um, that I don't think that had ever been said to me. And, and it was actually going... It was, well, two things. It was studying theology. I started to study theology at the end of high school. Uh, I won't go into why that was the case. I mean, there were some influences on me in my life that, that got me into more serious reading. Um, and I, I started reading, well, I mean, I read, I was crazy. I was, re I was reading Ludwig Ott's Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, which is not like, you know, an armchair, you know, relaxing Sunday <laughs> afternoon kind of read. It's a, it's a really intense dogmatic manual, but somebody gave it to me and said, this is, you know, this has got lots of good information. I, I wanted to know what the church actually taught. Okay. And I started reading Ludwig Ott, which is a book I still recommend, although it's pretty heavy going. Um, and, you know, I, I started reading this and especially the section on the Eucharist and it, and the other sacraments. And I was blown away. I could, I could, it was so sublime and so beautiful and so majestic and so powerful that the, what the church actually teaches just the dogmas right and this is like a pretty dry manual but i i was getting really excited about it and then i remember telling my friends i'm like did you know this did you know this and I was like, no, I've never heard that before. And so it was it that was kind of the intellectual component but then it was also um, when i went to thomas aquinas college Right. I don't know how much you know about TAC. It's in California. Uh, now it's in Massachusetts as well. Oh, but yeah. um, 
But at TAC, ever since their founding in I think 69, 70, right around then, <clears throat> they have they have done a very conservative Latin Novus Ordo with Gregorian chant, you know, oh, uh, yeah, with, yeah, with everybody kneeling for communion, receiving on the tongue. I mean, just like the the kind of ideal Novus Ordo that people wish they could they could go to if they have to go, you know, right. if they need to go to the Novus Ordo, they wish that it looked like this. Right. Uh, Right. That's the way TAC always has been. Um, you know, I wish that they would go ad orientem, and there are some other things that they they should do that they haven't done. But I'm not going to criticize them right now because what I'm the main point I want to make is I encountered a different kind of liturgy at TAC. It was a liturgy that was clearly focused on God, mm -hmm. um, on 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 His presence in our midst, His sacramental presence, the renewal of His sacrifice. There was a lot of silence. Um, on, on big days, there was Gregorian chant and polyphony, which is music that makes you feel like you're in the court of heaven. It makes you feel, it takes you out of this world. It lifts you above your workaday world and, and puts you in touch with the transcendent and with the divine, right? So I encountered all of these things there. And I think that's that was sort of the other piece that needed to be in place, the intellectual piece, what does the church actually teach? And then how should the church pray, right? Lex orandi, lex credendi, right? How we pray should reflect what we believe right. and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and then then kind of the final piece there was encountering the Tridentine Mass, the traditional Latin Mass. Um, okay. And what I found there, and I'll say this very briefly because I could go on for hours about this. Right. Uh, what I found there was kind of the end of the journey in that all the things that appealed to me about the TAC style Novus Ordo Mass, I found there in their most intense and pure and consistent and coherent form, right? So it was, you know, it, it had all the smells and bells and then some, okay. but it also had a very rich content. The prayers are, are very rich and the ceremonial, the, 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 the rubrics that the priest follows, it's all extremely rich. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was kind of like, I don't know, it was like graduating to a new level, like going from high school to college, going from college to graduate school. It was graduating to the next level. Mm -hmm. And and I've been doing that for 20, for a while, actually, I've been going to the traditional Latin Mass now for decades, um, you know, let's say 25 years or so. Yeah. And I and there's no, I haven't needed to graduate anywhere else. That, I, that, that was journey's end for me. Um, so... Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I think, yeah, that's, I think, yeah, I like to appreciate that because I think it's a common journey a lot of people go on. I think it is my journey as well. Um, mm -hmm. When I went to, because, you know, of course, I'm a, you know, I'm a convert, right? And then, you know, you, you don't know, you don't know. But then some of my friends invited me to um, St. Dominic's Catholic Church in Youngstown, Ohio. And it was a church that was being run by the Dominican fathers, right? And, you know, the Dominicans, you know, in some of the provinces, you know, they, they, they tend to be, you know, uh, more traditional. Mm -hmm. And so this parish was it's the first time I ever seen kneeling at an altar rail, right? Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's the first time I've ever really seen really reverence like this. And so, and then that really created a spark in me. It's like, oh wow. And then, I, oh, this is liturgy. So, so that's when I, I started to broaden out. And then I went to other Eastern rites, and that's really where my heart set in. That was the, in in the East with the divine mm -hmm. liturgy and um, Saint John, um, you know, his liturgy. And, and uh, so, but yeah, I think I think you have to be exposed. To that. Yes. Well, you know, I, 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 I don't know if in, if in, I don't remember if in this book, I, I do mention the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. I quoted a few times um, in my work in general, I frequently make references to the Eastern tradition yeah. Yeah. because, well, first of all, because there was a period of my life, about seven and a half years after graduate school, 
uh, when I, I taught in Austria, I taught at a school in Austria that had a daily Byzantine liturgy. Oh. Um, in fact, it had it in Church Slavonic, Ukrainian, Romanian, German, English. I mean, they had they had a big roster because they had lots of clergy from different countries. Oh, wow. Uh, and so we, so I really immersed myself in the divine liturgy. I went multiple times a week, probably at least three times a week. I was going wow. for that period of time. Um, and I, I fell in love with it too. I didn't fall in love with it to the extent that I transferred my citizenship there. <laughs> that, you know, I, did, I didn't become a naturalized citizen of the Byzantine Empire, so to speak. But, <laughs> but I, I, I loved it. And, and it taught me a lot about the essence of liturgy, about what, what is a traditional liturgy. I think you can see that, you can intuit it more rapidly with the, with the Eastern liturgies. Um, and then when I went back to the Tridentine Mass, I, in that period of time, I was going all over the places, so sometimes Novus Ordo, sometimes Tridentine, sometimes Byzantine. I started to see all of these profound commonalities between the right. Tridentine Rite and the Byzantine Rite. Right. Right. <clears throat> and unfortunately, I didn't find those things in the Novus Ordo. So it, that was part of what sparked my you know, now decades long quest to understand, you know, what is the liturgy and what should it do and what should it be like and what went wrong and how can we fix it? Yeah. One thing, one thing I, I, I got stuck on on your book early on and I wanted to talk to you to, you know, explain it to me a little bit further because I didn't really see how you developed, developed it further. Maybe it was in maybe a book, a previous book of yours I didn't read or something like that, but you talk about horizontalism. What is mm -hmm. that? Yeah, so horizontalism is, uh, I don't know, maybe it's a slightly barbaric expression, but it, um, it basically, okay, so the liturgy has two dimensions, um, always. It, it's a public, social, solemn, formal, official worship of the church. That's what the liturgy is. It's the worship of Christ, the head of the mystical body, and his members, all of us, in, in, on earth, in heaven, and in, and, and in purgatory. So in as much as the liturgy is inherently social, right, um, it, it relates us not just to God, but also to all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right. And that, in a way, you can think about that as a horizontal aspect, right? We're looking side to side at our brothers and sisters. The vertical dimension of liturgy is our relationship, how it puts us into relationship with God, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. And that obviously is more fundamental and more definitive because if God didn't exist, we wouldn't exist. The liturgy wouldn't exist. Nothing would exist. And he is our final end. And he's the one that we're tending towards. My brother is not my final end. Right. And so in that sense, the vertical dimension in the liturgy is fundamental and, and intrinsic to it, more intrinsic to it and more definitive. And it should, um, it should leave its mark in a very obvious way on the liturgy. That is to say, when we go into mass or into any form of worship, um, even if it's something like praying the breviary privately on our own, we should have an awareness that we are entering into the presence of God and that this, in this liturgy, we are, we, his humble creatures and servants, um, whom he deigns to call his friends, we are, we are, we are placing ourselves in his presence and giving ourselves to him through this liturgy, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the vertical dimension. And that's where you get the attitude of humility and adoration and reverence and all these other things. Um, so the point is that the liturgy is always going to have the horizontal dimension and the vertical dimension, but traditionally in East and West, the vertical is what dominates and the horizontal kind of flows from it and depends upon it, piggybacks on it, so to speak. Right. Um, 
what's happened in the last 50, 60 years mm -hmm. is that the horizontal has completely dominated mm -hmm. and liturgy is, is thought of as a community event, mm -hmm. as a gathering, as a kind of social, right? And it's just the people in this church building, it's all about us. It's all about us, right? It's not all about us. It's fundamentally not about us, um, except in as much as we're ordering ourselves to God, right? And to and to the head of the mystical body. So that's maybe a, a long dis description, but I think it's very important because what you see is that if a liturgy fails to communicate um, what, what you can call theocentric, God-centered yeah. worship, if it fails to communicate that as the main reason why we're there and the main thing that we're doing, then it is failing as liturgy. It might be valid in some objective sense, like something happens, but it's failing as liturgy, right? Mm -hmm. It's failing to do the work that liturgy is meant to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that I, I like how you, and I, I kind of thought you were, you, you were going there in it, and it, you know, because when I was when I was reading, you know, horizontalism, you know, I really wasn't really kind of getting where you're going. But then I said, okay, what's the opposite of horizontal? It's vertical, right? I yeah. Said, okay, I think that's what he's he's saying. So thanks for explaining upon that. And it seemed, you know, like how you, so that's in the back of my head as I'm working through your book, and it, it seemed to me to, that a lot of the problems that you're pointing out, the 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 abuses, the the loss of sacred, and everything. That at its at at its core, it seems to be this this new idea, right? Mm -hmm. This this turning towards the people, um, that, um, and of course, you know, like you know, I tell people, you know, in my book, The Divine Symphony, I talk about, you know, I bring a Ratzinger. I think there's a way to, you know, under, you know, there's a theology of understanding the the uh, the the the, the um, versus popular fine, mm -hmm. but. But it seems it seems that there's a lot a lot of the abuses stems from this horizontalism, right? Yes, yes. Well, and, and let's let's be frank. I mean, the Christian never in the Christian tradition, for almost two thousand years, did did Christians worship in any other direction than towards the east. The east was the great symbol, and is it, it is because it's a cosmic symbol. Uh, it, it's part of the world we live in. Um, the East is the great symbol of Christ, right. right? It's the rising sun. The rising sun on the Eastern horizon represents the resurrection of Christ and the second coming of Christ in glory, because he says the son of man will come from the East to the West. That's in Matthew, I believe, chapter 24. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and there are many other scripture texts. I talk about this in, in other books of mine. I, it, 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 scripture is pervas pervaded with this idea of the East as the symbol of of God and of Christ. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, and so like, in, I mean, let me give you a really, really striking example of that in, in a Byzantine baptism, the people at the beginning, the, the one to be baptized or the sponsor, if it's a, if it's an infant mm -hmm. turn toward the West and renounce the devil three times in the direction of the West and spit yeah. in that direction. Yeah. Then they turn around and then they acknowledge Christ three times yeah. uh, towards the East, right? I mean, and again, this is not some kind of weird Byzantine thing. This is just normal yeah. for Christian yeah. liturgy. Yeah. Um, so it's very, very bizarre and, and, and counterintuitive and deeply harmful for the priest to be facing the people. It, it turns, Ratzinger says, it turns the, the, the mass into a closed circle Mm -hmm. where it's 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 about us it's it's the priest 
kind of, in a sense, performing for the people. Whether he intends to or not, it comes off that way, talking to them, talking at them, and the people are interacting with him. And it's there's the horizontalism for you. Instead of, right, when, when we all face east, we are all oriented, right, as the word itself means towards yeah. the east. Orient, yeah. We're oriented. <laughs> and, and it's clear from the liturgy, even if you didn't know what was going on, if you saw the clergy up at the high altar facing east, Right, with their backs to you, this much you would know, it's not about me. Right. It's not about us. Right. It's right. about God. It's about something, right. something numinous, something different, uh, something worthy of their attention. Um, and then we get to be humbly part of that. We can, so to speak, touch the garment of Christ. You know, like during the Trentine Mass, when they lift the chasuble of the priest at the elevations, right? We're like that server who gets to touch the hem of Christ and be healed, you know, like yeah. the woman with the with the hemorrhage in the gospels, right? She touches the, the yeah. hem of Christ's garment and she's yeah. healed. Right? Christ wasn't paying attention to her at that moment. He wasn't looking at her, you know, in some kind of ooey gooey way. She touched him. He was not paying atten attention to her at all. And she touched him and divine power went forth from him and healed her, right? Yeah. I mean, this is, this to me is that scene in the Gospels is so moving because mm. it's her faith that leads her to go and and want to touch yeah. the garment of Christ. It's not he's not the one who goes out looking for her, right? Although in a way he knows that she's going to do this, right? So he is looking for her, but he's not. It's not obvious that he's looking for her. Right, right, and so similarly in the Mass, when the priest is facing east and all of us are facing in the same direction, um, it may look as if we're being ignored. But that's because God wants to, to, to take us up into his mystery. He doesn't want to leave us at our own level, at, at our puny level, you know, uh, but he wants to lift us up to something deeper and higher and richer and unimaginable, inconceivable, really. Um, and so this also is the role of silence in the liturgy, the fact that there's silence, that there should be silence and strange sacred music, strange in the sense that it's not contemporary pop style music right but it's you know uh, all of these things are really meant to re-educate us and rehabituate us mm -hmm. and give us help us to acquire the mind of christ our god um which is difficult for us to do i mean it's difficult for us to do as animals where we're rational animals we live in the material world we we we're kind of preoccupied with the things that we can smell and taste and touch mm -hmm. um, and so we're basically materialists and we need to be lifted out of our materialism. <laughs> uh, and, and as fallen human beings, we have disordered concupiscence. We're much too attached to the world we live in, which is not our final home. It's not our definitive home. It's not that for which we were created. So the liturgy needs to counteract some of that attachment to worldliness, right? The, the liturgy needs to be otherworldly. That's, that's what I'm getting at here. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's so, and that's a lot, man. There's so much there. We can, you know, we spend another hour just talking about that, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's there's a lot there as far as me, some of the brings. I don't know if you really took taking a look at some of the cultural liturgies, you know, this this reculturalization of some of the liturgies that's going on throughout the world, how we want to bring so much of the world into the liturgy that there's nothing mm -hmm. left there, right? We bring so much of the yeah. world into the liturgy that we've right. left nothing there for God. It's in the yes. that's, that's what's happened. Yeah, I mean, the, the, to put it bluntly, you know, we don't need to bring the Amazon into the liturgy. We need to bring, we, we don't need to bring the Amazon 
into heaven. We need to bring some of heaven into the Amazon, right? Yeah. And and that's what that's what the great missionaries did in the past. They they did not mm, they didn't go into a, a culture and say, let's pretend to be as much like the pagans as possible. Let's take on all their pagan paganism. No, they, they brought their traditional Catholic liturgy into every place they went and they celebrated it as yeah. best they could. Yeah. And it inspired people. Yeah. And then there was a genuine enculturation that took place. You know, the way the garments, the way that the chasuble was designed could yeah. vary from place to place. Yeah. The way the music sounded could vary somewhat from place to place. Yeah. But it wasn't as if the whole liturgy started from the point of we need to we need to um, uh, adopt the, the pagan customs and appearances and so on. It was never that way. It was always bringing in something from the outside, just the way revelation comes to us from the outside, right? I mean, yeah. that's, you have to, you can't miss the point of, one of the big points of scripture is that God enters into human history on his own initiative, on his own terms, and he dictates to Israel and later to all of us through Christ, how we are to worship him he he doesn't he doesn't sort of go looking around for advice and ideas from us you know how, <laughs> what are you supposed to do no it's not right, that way right 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 yeah so in that point that you made about um orient you know to the east um not not only that's how christians until the last 50 years that's how all catholics knew how to pray towards a source mm -hmm. of revelation I mean, even if you look at other monotheistic religions, I mean, the Muslims, they there was no other way for them to pray but towards Mecca. The Jews, you know, to Temple Mount. And so it was it was just a complete anomaly, anomaly which happened 50 years ago, right? This, this mm -hmm. idea of not facing towards the direction. Of right. And I always like to tell people, you know, as, as a father, and you know your father is, as well, that, you know, one, you know, children have to see their father pray. And mm -hmm. one reason is because that father, he's such a strong figure. You know, my daughters, they come to me to figure things out. Hey, dad, can you fix this? Can you do this? Can you do that? You know, as, as a father, you're just that image. Mm -hmm. But so when children see their father pray, they see, oh, he has a source. He has someone greater than him. Yes, exactly. Right? So children have to see their father pray, depend on God. Yes. And what a horrible example it is to see father in church not pray towards God. Right. Yeah. He's, he's facing us. The people exactly. we're not his sources. Trained. Exactly. No, no, exactly. And and in fact, it, you know, I mean, there's just a basic cognitive dissonance in having a priest at an at a table facing the people but talking to God. I mean, who, who's he talking to? Is it's utterly bizarre? And it's even worse. It's much worse if the tabernacle is behind him, because then he's just turning his back to our Lord present in the tabernacle. And you know, sure, you could say, okay, well, that's not the focus of the liturgy. That's true. The tabernacle isn't the focus of the liturgy, but you still shouldn't turn your back to it. And, and then they say, well, okay, well, so that we can face the people, we have to put the tabernacle somewhere else, in a closet somewhere. You know, no, 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 this is all wrong. It's the, the traditional, the way that, that Catholic, Catholic worship developed was very consistent. It Over many centuries, right, it took many centuries for this to happen. The altar, uh, the altar... It, it is a table in a sense, but it's also an altar, more fundamentally a place of sacrifice, a sacrificial meal. The altar moved towards the east end of the church, towards the back of the apse. It, so to speak, merged with the wall. And then a great, what we call a reredos, was built up around it. So those beautiful, you see them, especially in Gothic churches, these beautiful sculptures with statues and, and the crucifix and so on, which really accentuates and emphasizes 
uh, the place of the sacrifice, the altar. It gives it its its due prominence. Yeah. Uh, and then the tabernacle was incorporated into that as well, which wasn't always the case. And so now there's a total consistent line of vision, right? Where you walk into the church and you genuflect towards the tabernacle, which is also the high altar, which is also where the crucifix is, which is also where the mass is celebrated, right? So it's this massive reinforcement of all of these truths of the faith yeah. in one place. That's the beauty of traditional Catholic church design yeah. as it's been since the Council of Trent. And the readings are taken at that, taking place in the same place also, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, I haven't traveled much of Europe, right, since I became Catholic. So I haven't really seen many great cathedrals, right? Um, I guess the most beautiful one I, I, I've seen, you know, as far as what you're talking about, as far as also, is probably, I guess, Notre Dame in Mont Montreal. Mm, yes. Uh, well, probably I was most, get pictures of that, by the way. Yeah, what's the most beautiful one you've seen? Oh, gosh, the most beautiful church. Okay. Hands down, the most beautiful church I've ever seen is Chartres in France. Okay. Uh, that, and that's, of course, that's the, that's the place where the famous pilgrimage goes to every year, the, the Chartres pilgrimage with, you know, 15 or 20,000 people on it now, although COVID unfortunately put a, threw a wrench in the works for that last year. Um, Chartres is an incredible, incredibly beautiful church. Um, it's so harmonious. It's so mystical. It's it, it's it, the the stained glass windows you can just gaze at them for hours and they're oh, wow. in rapture they're so beautiful um and so there's something about the proportions you know the cathedral when you study it as i have i've done because i taught art history as well when you study the cathedral every single dimension in that cathedral was designed with symbolic numbers in mind so oh, wow. all of it, every part of it is in perfect ratios like the ratios that make musical scales like octaves and fifths yeah. and fourths and so on yeah. i don't know if you know about that but it's you know the whole church the arc, the church is basically well goethe once said that 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 um i think he said something like music is moving architecture and architecture is frozen music. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. Uh, and so this chart is music. It's musical. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, it's, it's, it's an incredible thing. I want to have you back soon. Cause you know, I've written that, that book back right there, divine symphony. It, it talks about how, cause I'm a, you know, I used to be a musician. I don't play much anymore. Love the classical symphony orchestra. And so I wrote the book mm -hmm. divine symphony talking about, how the four movements of the liturgy, we can look into the classical composers. And ah, that's great. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I love it. yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sure you, I'm sure you know this, but uh, just, just a few couple of weeks ago, not even, uh, we celebrated the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's baptism, uh, which is essentially 250th anniversary of his birth, because the first yeah. date we have about him was his yeah. baptism, which probably yeah. took place very shortly after his birth. Right. Um, and. Uh, I, I wrote an article about it at one Peter five with some, with a bunch of uh, my favorite Beethoven pieces. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm with you yeah. there. The, yeah, the classical yeah. uh, structure yeah. symphony as well as string yeah. quartets. And yeah, I, mean, I even bring it into my, I even bring it to the RCA when I'm talking about call and response uh, in the, in the, you know, in, you know, the ancient liturgies is always between the priests and the deacons, you know, or the priests and the altar servers. And now Norris Oda was the priest and the people, but the call and response, you know, I, then I bring in the lit and bring in the symphony. I'm talking about um, periodic phrasing, you know, that, that's mm -hmm. why I talk about the, the call and response. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big, so, but you're, you're actually a musician, right? I'm just, a, I'm just a fan. You, you compose music. So I got to have you back on talking yeah. about that. But speaking, speaking of COVID, um, and you have a huge chapter. Uh, please, again, make sure you guys 
get his book. Again, you can buy it at Sophia um, Press. Um, you can get it for free if you're a member of my Patreon club this month. Um, but you have a whole chapter talking about why we should receive kneeling and on the tongue. But I have this question in the comment box here. Um, COVID-19, whatever, whatever whatever the next COVID is going to be. Yeah. Um, COVID-8. So, um, is, is it a scandal, scandal received communion in the hand in light of COVID? Yeah. So it's a complicated question because there are a lot of different dimensions to this. But the first thing I'm going to say is that I have done a lot of reading about COVID. Um, probably too much, but I've done a lot of reading about it. I've tried to do my research. Um, I'm in touch with doctors and nurses. I And I am quite convinced that it is not the, oh my gosh, let's melt down and have a huge panic pandemic that it's been made out to be. It, yeah. It's serious, unquestionably. Um, people are dying from it as they will die all the time in their hundreds of thousands from all kinds of causes. But they are, but it's serious enough, but it's not, it's not the kind of thing that we have. To, it's not the bubonic plague, the black death. It's not the Spanish flu of 1918. It's just not. So there's a lot of exaggeration, a lot of hype, a lot of fear that's being promoted constantly 24 seven by the media. Um, talking about death tolls, death tolls. Guess what? The total death toll in 2020 is going to be the same as it was predicted to be based on all of the normal statistical analyses. Okay. That's a fact. You can check it out. Uh, so the, the total, I mean, it, what's happened, of course, is that people's deaths, people are dying from COVID-19 or their deaths are being attributed to COVID-19 um, instead of to pneumonia or to the common flu or to whatever else would have carried them off. Right. right? Um, so I I just want to say that, that the, the reactions of some bishops and some priests have been excessive given what they should know with their own reason about the situation. That's one thing. But then getting into actually the liturgical question, it's very dangerous for us to make our bodily health the measure of what we do in the liturgy when we're glorifying God and when we're worshiping him. Mm. It's a very dangerous precedent. It's a slippery slope. It's about me, myself, and I. That's not the way we should be thinking about these things. It, we should receive our Lord as reverently as possible. We should not receive him in a way that, that diminishes the ontological, the difference in being between the priest and the, and the, lay, the layman, the fact that his hands have been anointed for distributing for, for consecrating and distributing communion and ours have not. We should not receive in a way that risks losing fragments of the host. The church fathers are very clear about that, right. um, that, that we should treat these fragments as like gold dust and like pearls, right? We should do everything we can not to lose any of them. Communion in the hand is a terrible thing from that point of view. And it's not even necessarily more hygienic. If you give communion to people kneeling on their tongue and you know what you're doing, you don't come into contact with them. Whereas with hands, our hands are filthy and, and people continually come into contact with the hand unless you drop the host, which is ridiculous. Nobody should do that. So yeah. let's just say we do not make physical health our God. We do not make it our main measure. And we don't let it trump the tradition and the law of the church. The law of the church is very clear. Every Catholic may receive kneeling. Every Catholic may receive on the tongue. This is how we should do it. This is how it's always, how it's been done for, you know, over a thousand years. Um, yeah. And, uh, and that's the, that's really, we, we need to be really clear about this and not compromise on this. Yeah. And, and I'm have a comment here that didn't come over from Facebook. It's from Martha. Um, so she goes to Latin mass 
I think all the time for Sunday, she says she attends Latin high mass and receives communion kneeling on tongue. But she says during the week with my work schedule, my parish, the 6 a.m. Novus Ordo mass, she goes to, um, she doesn't feel right about receiving communion on the hand. So she stays in that area and she pray. And mm -hmm. so we had, I had, you know, the same question of this type came on when I had Father um, um, Allman on the show. Yeah. And, um, and it's talking about, you know, receiving, you know, should, you know, if, if, if they're at a parish where that's the only way they're going to receive, be able to receive communion, um, is it better just to not receive it? Yeah. So my, my opinion on this point, uh, and I defend it in the book, is that, yes, it's better not to receive in that case. Um, it's better for us to take that opportunity as, 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 a, as an invitation to intensify our prayer life, our desire, our longing for the Eucharist, which is something sacramental access has become so easy in modern times in the modern West that we are very much in danger of taking it for granted, of taking our Lord for granted, the routine and the habit that I was talking about before. Um, and, you know, even Ratzinger himself, I quote him, this is not my my crazy idea, is Ratzinger's crazy idea. He, he says, we would benefit from a Eucharistic fast from time mm. to time. We would benefit from intensifying our desire, our longing, our preparation, and realizing the magnitude of what it is that we're about to do. Yeah. I, I think, so the, the history of the church frequently, how should I put it? There's a kind of pendulum swing in the history of the church about a lot of issues. So we go on, on this issue, we go from eras where people hardly ever received communion because right. they, they had such a an overpowering, overwhelming sense of the magnitude of receiving God, which we should have, right? We should have that sense. It's, it, this is an overwhelming thing. It's, it's, I mean, it's amazing that we're not destroyed. And, and I talk about that too, that, that God in his mercy comes to us, but doesn't sort of obliterate us with his glory, right? Um, so it, some, you know, people had such an awareness of the greatness and the sacredness and the awesomeness of, of communion that they hardly ever went. Right. And now we've swung to the opposite pendulum where everybody receives no matter what. Whoever's in the pews, they all just get up, file after, you know, they just file out. Everybody goes. This is an absolutely the opposite extreme problem. Yeah. And you talk about that in your book, too. I think it's, um, let me bring it up. There's a chapter where you're talking about, um, um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things I try not, to, you know, I try not to, you know, be that guy that's being so judgmental about people. But it's always just disturbed me that when I go to mass and I'll, I'll see almost 100 percent of people there in the communion line. But just a minute ago, before mass began, there was nobody in confession line. Yeah, and, and you comment on this. You quote Pope Pius XII um, in his 1946 radio message. And he says, "Perhaps the greatest sin in the world today is that men have begun to lose the sense of sin. Nobody's mm -hmm. sinning, obviously, because everybody yeah, yeah, yeah. is eating Holy Communion." <laughs> right. Unfortunately, yeah. No, that's true. And and so again, the older custom. When I say older, I mean going back, you know, 500 years, uh, is, is that before you received communion, you always went to confession. Now, I, I'm not saying that that's necessary, and, and I don't do that myself. That, that is, I don't always go to confession before going to communion. But on the other hand, I have found it to be very beneficial to my spiritual life not to go to communion always, even when I can. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, if I'm tired or preoccupied and I don't feel that I've been able to prepare myself uh -huh. you know, as well as, as I hope to, as well as I know I can, yeah. and I will just refrain from going. And it, it, I think it's better that way. I think it's better that we not, 
Yeah, we have to find the right balance. And by the way, the, the great saints talked about this. St. Augustine talks about how often we should receive. St. Thomas Aquinas talks about it. I quote them in my book uh, to give you know sound advice to people so that it's not just Kwasniewski saying these things. Um, and, and all of the great saints, they have, they say, there is no one size fits all answer about how often you should go to communion. Right. You need to discern uh, for yourself, and they give they give criteria for this. You know, yeah. are have you you know if you're going so frequently that you are no longer right. really aware of what you're doing, right. and you don't have this this burning longing right. to be united to the Lord, but it's just like ah ho hum, I'm just going to do it because I'm here. Why not? Um, then then you need to pull back. You need to recover something that you've lost. And that's always yeah. been my struggle with daily mass. Um, um, and I have the ability to go, you know, and I, I feel like I, I definitely should go more. I definitely go at least twice a week, uh, you know, Sundays and definitely try to make at least once during a week. But I noticed when I used to go every day, I mm -hmm. did lose that sense of sacred. I did lose lose that sense of of newness. Um, mm -hmm. And the guy here, he said, you know, he calls it, um, Michael calls it Eucharistic amazement. I lost that sense of Eucharistic yes. amazement, right? Yes. That's um, right. And so I definitely pulled back now. But, I, you know, I never thought about what you said, maybe just not. On those days, still go. Still yeah. go really the thing too, the there's there's a, there's a kind of bigger question here that we're circling around, which is the point of the mass is not just to receive communion. That is, our Lord didn't institute the mass solely as a communion service. Mm -hmm. In fact, primarily <laughs> and essentially, the mass is the offering to the Almighty Father of the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice that right. saves mankind, that saves you and me. And we, the privilege we have in going to Mass, the first privilege is that we get to unite ourselves to that perfect sacrifice of Christ by our faith and by our love. That is already a more than sufficient reason for going to Mass. All right. And let me get to two more questions before we leave. I know you got to get out of here. Um, one from Trudy here. Um, Doctor, what advice would you give to someone who attends the Novus Ordo and not able to attend the Latin mass, mm -hmm. how should one be reverent during the mass? Yeah. So, I mean, it's 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 so it's something of a difficult question because on the one hand, the way the Novus Ordo is celebrated can vary so much from place to place. So if you're fortunate to be in a place where, you know, let's say you have a younger priest who's more devout, more traditionally minded, you know, he might actually celebrate in a way that makes it very easy to pray and easy to recollect yourself and easy to adore the Lord. But in other places, it's kind of noisy and distracting. And there's a, there's a lot of loud music of an inappropriate style. And it's really, really, really hard to concentrate and to pray and to recollect yourself. Yeah. So I think part part of this is going to depend upon like what the challenges are that you're dealing with or not. Right. Um, but it seems to me, uh, yeah. I mean, it, you have to basically you have to find the best Novus Ordo you can. I mean, maybe you have only one option, but if you have multiple options, find the best one that you have. Mm -hmm. Try to prepare yourself to it beforehand. If the church is quiet before mass, um, try to get there before mass and pray either quietly or with some devotions yeah. um, and stay after mass. Again, if it's quiet, if it's not, you might be better off preparing at home uh, or, or praying in the car. Um, and, you know, during mass itself, I think it, it can help to have a missile. I mean, even though the, the, the Novus Ordo tends to be in the vernacular almost you know 99.9% .9 of the time, I think it can help to put our eyes onto the texts that are being read, let's say the scripture mm. readings, the other parts of the Mass, even the Eucharistic prayer, because it, it helps us to, I think, to it when we hear things, it's kind of like uh, water off a duck's back. You know, it just kind of flows in one ear and out the other. But if we make the effort to look at it in a missile, 
as we're kneeling there yeah. or as we're sitting there, you know, it might actually go in more deeply and, it, and yeah. we might feel like we have um, assimilated more of, yeah. of what's there. Um, so at least those are some ideas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also just highly recommend that people learn to pray the divine office. Um, yeah. You know, I recommend the office of prime in the morning. I have an article about that, 1 Peter 5, that talks all about the office of prime. Um, Compline in the evening as night prayer. You know, different people have end yeah. up with different preferences. But to become aware of praying with the Psalms, and I mean, that that is the bread and butter for for. Christians over all the centuries of, I mean, all the way back to the beginning, the bread and butter was not so much the Eucharist, but the Psalms, the Psalter of David and getting to know those Psalms is really a, a, it's a powerful form of prayer. I couldn't live without the Psalms. It just gets you deep into just salvation history. I mean, when when you're praying the Psalms, I mean, you're praying in a tradition that's been with us for such a, I mean, the history of, of, of our faith. Right. And just uh, just, uh, just one last point about the Psalms yeah. is that sometimes I think part of the problem with Catholic life in, in, I think this has been going on possibly for quite a while, like a century or more, um, but the Mass has tended to become everything to us. It's the only thing we do as Catholics in public. There, there's, it's almost like there's no other prayer that exists for us. It's the Mass and the Rosary. Well, and the rosary is great because that's meditative and that's something you can do in your home in the domestic church. Yeah. But the liturgy of the hours, well, I should I should call it by its more traditional name, the divine office. Yeah. The divine office is liturgy. It is a liturgical prayer. It is part of the great prayer of Christ and his church. Yeah. It's not just a private prayer. Um, and it, it it's very nourishing in the way that liturgy is supposed to be nourishing to us. So what I'm saying is Catholics also need to to find other forms of devotion and other forms of liturgical prayer than the mass. And when they do that, I have found, for example, that if I'm unable to make it to mass one day, but I pray lauds, I pray the the morning prayer. For me, it's, it's of course not the same thing as mass. It's not meant to be the same thing as mass, but it has the same, it has a richness to it and a kind of nutrition, nutritional value uh, that is quite similar to what the mass has uh, for us as a liturgy. So I think it's good just to kind of diversify and increase our awareness of what's out there in our Catholic tradition. Yeah. Yeah. That's that, man. That's rich and beautiful. I like all those points. They're very practical, easy to do. Um, um, thoughts on um, live streaming during adoration yeah. in times of COVID. Okay, so I, okay, I'm sorry, I'm going to sound like a party pooper here, but um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not really a fan of live streaming stuff. I mean, adoration especially, but but even just even mass. I know that it's I know that it's been helpful for people. I've watched some liturgies too, especially last winter. Um, you know when we had it seemed like we had no choice. Um, so I'm not saying that, you know, it's wrong. You should never do it. But it there is it really, Catholicism is so much about, it is the incarnation, right? It's the 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 taking on of flesh by the, by God, by the son of God. Um, so our religion is incarnate. It's a religion of, of, of real things that we sense, that we see and smell and taste and touch. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, St. Thomas says, you know, God uses those things to lift us above those things, right? That is, yeah. as yeah. I said before, we need to be weaned from material and sensible things, but God uses material and sensible things as part of the process for doing that. It's a wonderful kind of paradox there. Yeah. Um, so to, 
to, to so a virtual liturgy is kind of a contradiction in terms. It's very unsatisfactory. It's something that we can put up with, but we should really try our best, whatever we can do, either to pray at home, as I was saying, with the divine office, or to go to a liturgy in person. And, and then for adoration, it seems to me that's especially true because the, the main point of adoration is to be in the presence of the blessed sacrament, right? To be in the same room, to be just feet away from, from this holy bread of eternal life. Yeah. And that is not something that can be streamed by pixels. You know, it can't be streamed across the internet from one place to your computer. You can't stream the real presence, okay? Yeah. So yeah. that's that's why I, that's what I have to say about that. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people just find them hard to watch. I never, I never get into them. I know when I'm down here working in the morning, I know, yeah, seeing them pops up on my YouTube, and I have it on. I'm listening to it, you know, because who wouldn't listen to the mass if it's there? Um, but you know, it's just, it's definitely, it's not even close to being it's hard. Yeah, and it's hard to get that Eucharistic amazement, right? <laughs> that somebody you know, mentioned. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, and and maybe you and I are particularly uh, people like us are especially. We're kind of sick of computers. Like I, I almost wish I didn't have to spend as much time as I do at the computer. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it, it. You feel a bit like it's a ball and chain. And so, you know, when I'm going to pray, I go to my room, I shut my door, you know, and I take out my breviary and I pray. You know, and I've got an icon, I've got candles, like real candles, not electric <laughs> candles. You know. And and this is, you know, I I think that that is so refreshing. It's yeah. so refreshing to just leave. Yeah to leave yeah. the office. I think, I think um, Kathleen is, I mean, I mean, during this whole COVID thing, yeah, I, did, I think, you know, God did use, he did, a, you know, did open up a lot of doors for a lot of priests. We learned about Father Altman, right? I mean, it's just, yeah. you know, a lot, of, sure. a lot of blessings, a lot of blessings there. Yeah. And I just want to say too, that, uh, you know, I mean, not, not to sound too harsh about things, but there, I know people, actually quite a few people who, because they couldn't go to mass, they started watching the traditional Latin mass <laughs> and they fell in love with it. And they realized, yeah. you know, they, 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 it, it actually benefited them as Catholics. It reconnected them with their, with their great tradition yeah. that they didn't know about or barely knew about. Um, and so, yeah, definitely the, the Lord is going to bring good out of all, you know, he always brings good out of evil. Yeah. His um, will will be done on earth. Yes. yes it doesn't happen. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Um, last question. Um, people, Going, you know, people who want to push back on you again. Um, we're about to head out. Father, um, Dr. Kaznevsky is here. Um, he has his book, The Holy Bread of Eternal Life. Make sure you guys go to Saint so um, Sophia Press and get it. Um, also, again, if you're a member of my book club on Patreon, you get it for free. Who wouldn't want that? All right. Um, so the last question, um, uh, receiving communion in the hand. We, you know, that's the normal kneeling and on the tongue. That's the ordinary method, right? Someone pushes back on you, doctor, says, well, Jesus gave people communion in the hand. Mm -hmm. So in, in, in my book, I talk about this. We actually don't know how, how our Lord gave communion to his apostles. Um, and there are actually really good reasons to think that he might've given it to them in the mouth. So what, don't, we know, don't we know he gave it to Judas in the hand, right? No, no. He, he, we, we know he gave it to Judas in the mouth. That's that much comes from scripture because, because, well, okay. When you look at the last supper narrative, right. at one point, our Lord dips bread into, into a dish right. and gives it to Judas. Now, when you dip a piece of bread into liquid, you don't stick it in somebody's hands. You put it directly into their mouth. And that is a Middle Eastern custom, even to this day, mm. for people to feed one another like that. 
And in fact, right, we also know mothers feed their children and lovers feed each other. Chocolate <laughs> and stuff like that, right? So the idea of feeding somebody in the mouth is not some kind of outlandish, like ridiculous theory. No, it happens right. even today, right? Um, and especially in the Middle East. So I think we, had, we, we need to not overstate what we know about the apostles. However, that doesn't really matter because the church, we, we don't have this, this Protestant notion that what we're trying to do is imitate as exactly and literally as possible what right. Jesus and his apostles did. Right. Because if we were going to do that, you know, we should all wear, you know, togas and grow beards and, and pray Jewish prayers and, you know, do all this, all the rest of the stuff. No, no, we're not literalistic in that way. Right. Um, right. What, what, the, what the church holds is that our, our, our liturgy and our practices develop over time as we ourselves become more and more aware of the depth of what we believe and of the most appropriate way for us to, for example, to distribute communion to a large number of people, right? right. That's not the Last Supper scenario. What we're doing at Mass is not exactly the Last Supper scenario. Um, yeah. So the, the, we have to trust that if the Holy Spirit is really guiding the church, there's a reason why universally in East and West, communion in the hand disappeared fairly early on. And by the way, even when it was done, it was done in a quite different way, but I can't get into that. I get into that in my book. It's not done the way we do it today. The way we do it today is an absolute novelty um, that has only Protestant roots. But, um, but, uh, but, but, you know, communion on the tongue spread universally in East and West for good and legitimate and important reasons. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need to reflect on. And as I say, I, I do that in, in the book. So yeah. all of your objections, I've thought of them. I've responded <laughs> to them. They're there. <laughs> Dr. Peter Kavnevsky, thank you so much for coming on Talking Catholic. It was a oh, you're welcome. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So definitely gotta have you back sometime. Maybe next year we gotta coordinate. I want to talk to you so much about liturgy and symphony. I really do. Ah, absolutely, sounds wonderful. Thank you so much, and have a blessed Christmas tide. You as well. Hi everybody, thank you for watching. Subscribe here to get the latest from the show. Also, be sure to check out the content you've missed. If you'd like to keep supporting my work, consider joining my team on Patreon, where you'll be gifted great perks like books, hoodies, and mugs. Thanks again. All right. Thanks again.